godliness may call on you to be, if not a rebel or an insurgent, at least an idiot, remaining true in word and belief against the cult to your conscience. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. For this episode, we're bringing you a talk from our Acton Lecture Series that was recorded November 29th, 2022. There's been renewed interest in the role Christianity has played in liberalism since Larry Seidentop's 2014 book, Inventing the Individual, The Origins of Western Liberalism. Building on Seidentop, Daniel Klein says universal benevolent monotheism, and Christianity in particular, has led to the articulation of a specific social grammar and corresponding rights. In short, Adam Smith's liberal plan. But can liberalism be sustained in a world that no longer takes its ethics from that monotheism? Daniel Klein is professor of economics and gin chair at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where Eric Matson and he lead a program in Adam Smith. He's also associate fellow at the Ratio Institute in Stockholm, research fellow at the Independent Institute, and chief editor of Econ Journal Watch. He and Matson also lead CL Press and curate the Liberty Fund column called Just Sentiments. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome to our last installment of the Acton Lecture Series for 2022. We're absolutely delighted you're here. My name is Dan Churchwell, and I serve as the Director of Programs and Education here at the Institute. My pleasure and my team to, to run these events, and it's so good to see you. Especially after uh, the Thanksgiving week, we are absolutely delighted. Um, very thankful that you're here. We're thankful for our online participants. Thank you for joining us as well. We're thank you for, uh, to the donors who make items like this possible throughout the year. So we're very thankful here at the Institute, and we're looking forward to a very strong 2023. It's my pleasure to introduce the speaker for today. And recently, I was in uh, New York City facilitating one of our conferences, and we had a short break, and so I was able to take a walk in Lower Manhattan. And uh, I've always wanted to visit St. Paul's Chapel. Anybody been to St. Paul's Chapel there in Lower Manhattan? Very beautiful. Um, it's always been locked up when, I, when I've walked past it. And so uh, this year it happened to be open. And it is the oldest uh, continuous building that's been in use in Manhattan. Opened in 1766. Has a beautiful cemetery. And uh, I was just sitting there and realizing that there's what a brilliant connection to the past and the present. You're in this very quiet area, and yet just a hundred yards from you is, is Manhattan, and the, the noise and the, the honking and, and the, just the wonderful vibrancy of modern life, and yet the grave right next to me was from 1784. So 236 years were separating what I was sitting and, and, and enjoying the peaceful 
uh, park-like setting of that cemetery, but thinking about the conference we were about to do and the connection of really great, powerful ideas on what it means to be a human person, on the idea of the economic life and political economy. What does it mean to connect ideas from the past into the modern world? And I was just so thankful to think uh, about the opportunities we have at Acton to put on conferences like this. Um, and I'm just reminded and just very thankful for what we do here. Thank you for all of your participation. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Daniel Klein. He's a professor of economics and the gin chair at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where Eric Matson and he lead a program in Adam Smith. He's also an associate fellow at the Ratio Institute in Stockholm, a research fellow at the Independent Institute, and chief editor of the Econ Journal Watch. He earned his PhD in economics from New York University and is the author and editor of five books and dozens of articles, largely on Adam Smith in that era. Please give a warm Acton welcome to Dr. Daniel Klein. Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here. I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Um, my title is The Godly Path to Adam Smith's Liberal Plan. That refers to his politics. He put it this way, allowing every man to pursue his own interest, his own way upon the liberal plan of equality, liberty, and justice. My topic is the godly path to that. When does it begin? One answer is with what is told of in Genesis, so I suppose billions of years ago. Well, in the interest of time, I jump to 10,000 BC. That should be a piece of cake. When our ancestors lived in small bands, like the one shown there, of about 40 people. Between then and 1776, our culture changed a great deal, but our genes did not, and still have not. Genetically and instinctually, we are still band man. As band man, we, that is our ancestors, were integrated into the band. Those 40 people were all in all, ethically. We are naturally sympathetic and social. We had a direct sense of the good of the whole, and there was no whole higher than the band. We have an instinct, I think, to have direct social signals that tell us what to feel and to do in a way that is consensus-oriented and immediately observable. The band was the direct and immediate basis for meaning and validation Interpretation was simple and common to all. Indeed, language was primitive, so critical thought would be minimal even if tolerated. We were dumb pack animals. We lived an existence of common knowledge, something still yearned for today, but impossible. The good of the band constitutes the good of the band, constitutes the basis for the spirit or God of the band. As Emile Durkheim said, experience in that little picture was encompassing. Sentiment was encompassing. 
and our ancestors knew a feeling that Durkheim called effervescence, a holy communion with the spirit through communion among the whole. Today, however, society is complex. Knowledge is wildly disjointed, a blooming, buzzing confusion. To us, the band seems like a cult. The word cult is pejorative, but in the band context back then, cultishness made sense. It worked in such a small, simple society, and we still have within us, I think, a bent towards cultishness. The godly path to Adam Smith's liberal plan is a path away from cultishness. The next moment in the story is the ancient world, say from Homer to Constantine. Here I begin to draw from Larry Seedentop, this book. His story goes from about Homer to 1600, whereas I'm coming up to Adam Smith in 1776 later. Seedentop says that Christianity made liberalism possible. I agree. He anchors his story in the ancient world, which was also quite thoroughly cultish. Why do I anchor it in the band? It is because I think that to understand ourselves, our lapsarian selves, we need to see ourselves as band man. For one thing, band man helps us interpret politics, as Friedrich Hayek suggested. I realize that many of you would anchor the story in Genesis, and that's fine by me, but I suggest you give a chapter to band man. So, Seedentop describes the cultishness of the ancient world in three chapters. The primary seat of religion was the family, which was a cult, the paterfamilias being its priest. The ancient world was a compound of nested cults from the family up to the city, each level having its god corresponding to the good of that level of the nested cults. Seedentop richly describes the cultishness of all of this ancient world, and I highlight a few things. The ruler or the king was a top priest, if not a god. Within the polity, the unit of subjection was the group down to the family, not the person. The vast majority of persons lacked the status of citizen, as a matter of fact. The man, um, uh, the man or woman was to the compounded group as a foot to the body and was to conform to the cultish cues that constituted the common interpretation of the cosmos. The man or woman was not charged with thinking, really, except for learning the program. He or she was simply to get with the program, which was cultishly unequivocal and unambiguous. You know, follow the science. The foot does not think. The man or woman was not expected to have a conscience, really, nor even a soul. It was the family that had a soul and then an immortality. Um, <clears throat> and then finally, there we go. What about those who did not get with the program? You know, the spreaders of myths, dis, and malinformation. To think or talk outside the hardened compound cultishness was to be an idiot. 
that's outside the kind of orthodoxy, you might say, or the cult. You might think idiosyncratic here. It puts a little different spin on it. Looking back, we might say that it was a contest then between cultists and idiots. But the idiot was also sometimes treated as a traitor. Miscreancy was a kind of treason. The next big development is universal benevolent monotheism, which was fundamentally at odds with the polytheistic hardened compound of nested cults. Following Judaism and other monotheistic trends, there came Christianity. Now, I believe Seton Top, just to say a word about him, was raised Christian, but my guess is that he does not consider himself a Christian. There's some other information about Seton Top which we could return to. As for myself, I grew up in northern New Jersey of Jewish family background, but raised without religion. Today, I am agnostic. I am classical liberal, avid for Adam Smith, whose ethics are patterned after benevolent monotheism with the impartial spectator, a very important expression in the theory of moral sentiments, in the highest sense, a godlike being, if not God, and with the conscience, a representative of that universal beholder. In an article at Law and Liberty, Dan Mahoney and I lament that many people have, in their irreligiosity, thrown the baby out with the bathwater. For Seedentop, the thing to be explained is why liberalism emerged only in the West. Another way to put it or represent this point is looking at economic freedom. This is from 2017. I'm a little scared to look more recently. Um, and the turquoise there are the ones most free. Um, and Seedentop's answer about what explains, as it were, that pattern is this, Christendom in 1300. Um, you see that Western Europe has a lot of the turquoise blue, and then areas greatly influenced by Western Europe, Christendom, um, are also the most free. So in a way, that represents what the whole theory is, the whole thing to be explained and the explanation. Um, Seedentop does not claim originality. He draws on these authors especially, but of course many have argued that Christianity made liberalism possible. What's so remarkable about Christianity? Putting aside, that is, the incarnation and the like. Seedentop expounds it richly, giving special importance to Paul and um, Augustine and telling of further developments through the century. I can only list some points about Christian ontology and associated Christian moral intuitions. God loves his creatures who are called to become his children. Everyone is a creature made in his image, Imago Dei. God's benevolence extends to humankind universally, including posterity. That expands the field of the whole, which started out in my story as just we 40 people, the whole far beyond your family, your city, or your nation. To cooperate with God, you must advance what he finds beautiful, the good of the whole. That sets the human to figuring out how the world works, and indeed, what constitutes goodness. The very nature of what your well-being consists in, 
changes quite fundamentally. What becomes the cardinal matter of your well-being is God's approval of your actions, of your actions. You might be stuck in the wilderness in a hailstorm with nothing to eat, but if you have been conducting yourself lately, kindly, bravely, or otherwise virtuously, you don't feel so bad despite the hail and the hunger. Your conscience is a representative of God, not necessarily a good one, but a representative nonetheless. God stands separately from any temporal cult. He stands separately in particular from Caesar. Indeed, he stands above Caesar, who after all is but another creature of God. The spiritual is above the temporal. And finally here, godliness may call on you to be, if not a rebel or an insurgent, at least an idiot, remaining true in word and belief against the cult to your conscience. Much comes from these Christian moral intuitions. They turn the world upside down, as Seedentop puts it. They fundamentally challenge cultishness, cultishness, which is so tied up with temporal power and status. There are some things about the Jesus story that Seedentop does not emphasize uh, that I think significant. I just want to mention a couple here. Jesus was not a political leader, in fact, a carpenter. He never wielded a sword. Prince of Peace does seem fitting. He was crucified by the top political power and not as some kind of combatant. What better way to launch a government skeptical outlook than have the Messiah fall victim to government and its initiation of coercion? Most of the book covers the thousand years shown here um, and he explains how the ontological views and moral intuitions developed and why it took so long to translate them into social and political practice to the extent that they were translated into practice. For a treatment of Seedentop, uh, let me point you to a project undertaken with Acton sponsorship as well as from the Institute for Humane Studies and posted at the Institute of Intellectual History uh, website at the University of St. Andrews. There's a complete uh, set of notes to follow along. Um, so anyway, there's some, in this whole long history now, uh, I do want to make some, some points, some generalizations. So the title is Inventing the Individual. Christendom would see the world as being inhabited by individuals. Such individualism was a flip side of Imago Dei universalism. Christianity battled the cult of family or clan. The church restricted not only polygamy, but cousin marriage and such. Today, that development is hailed by weird scholars. That's Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. You might say, starting we go from cultists against idiots, and then idiots spawning weirdos. <laughs> The standing of the individual before God provided a model for the standing of the individual before the sovereign. Here we take care to distinguish among three kinds of superiority, and hence three kinds of inferiority. There is the inferiority of me as I stand before Novak Djokovic in tennis. 
Then there is the inferiority as I stand before the sovereign or governor. <clears throat> and then there is the inferiority as I stand before a godlike being. The point is that the divine relationship made a model for politics. In the jural relationship, the unit of subjection became the individual. Now, emphasizing subjection may not seem very liberal, but that, in my view, is a problem with certain strains within liberalism and not the Smithian strain. With the subjection of the individual comes, well, the individual, and hence consideration of his or her interests and rights. Every individual is a child of God, and every individual, including the governor, bears a responsibility to advance the good of the whole. The king is a jural superior, but morally he stands equally before God and with the same kind of responsibilities. Thus, Christian moral intuitions opened a path to a liberal approach to politics with checks, limitations, divisions, responsibilities bearing on governors. Christian moral intuitions are themselves a check on power. What's more, the subjection of the individual clarifies jural nation, I'm sorry, jural notions between subjects, that is between neighbors who are jural equals in relation to one another. That system of jural relations then serves as a baseline. The subject may say to the sovereign, hey, my neighbor isn't allowed to take my stuff, so if you're going to take my stuff, you ought to give us a good reason. At the end of the book is a chapter titled Dispensing with the Renaissance. Renaissance means rebirth. But the so-called Renaissance was not a rebirth of ancient ways, as ancient ways were highly cultish. Thinkers of the so-called Renaissance and Enlightenment misunderstood their history and the development of their own presuppositions. Machiavelli, Montaigne, Voltaire, Paine sustained presuppositions of the individual, a legacy of Christianity. And in assailing Christianity or the church, they often were throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Other liberal thinkers, however, knew better, and it is they, like Lord Acton, who best represent liberalism. Here, an important idea in Seedentop is that there is always the danger of the church being too submerged within or entangled with the temporal powers. If the church passes into being a tool of those powers, then there is little liberal prospect. Submergence of this kind might explain why Eastern Christianity did not give rise to liberalism and why other monotheistic regions did not. In the so-called Renaissance and Enlightenment, many thinkers saw the church in their day or recent year as part of the problem. They looked at the Catholic church and thought, what have you done for me lately? They didn't understand the evolution of their presuppositions and threw the baby out with the bathwater. In an epilogue, Seedentop highlights two senses of the word secular, one about religious belief, the other about so-called separating church and state. Someone can be, a secular in, can be secular in one sense, but not the other. One who is avid both for God and for separating church and state is a theistic 
secularist. The point is that the liberal secularist owes a lot to Christianity, and in both senses, both the liberal non-theist and the liberal who favors separating church and state owes a lot to uh, Christianity. Now, I add some points to Seedentop's story with the additional period up to 1776 in mind, especially. Deirdre McCoskey explains that in the 17th and 18th centuries, there bubbled up the moral authorization of the pursuit of honest income. The moral authorization of the pursuit of honest income. That moral authorization invigorated economic life, bringing dynamism, innovation, and the great enrichment, Deirdre tells us, and I agree. Now, what does it take for something to become morally authorized? First, the moral authorization of something depends on moral authorities. <clears throat> Some authors with influence who were not clerical, clerics uh, very much helped to do this. Um, with a large part of you know, the population and the leaders, such as those shown here. But moral authorities based in the church, um, like these fellows, especially moved society and sealed the deal. I highlight Protestants I know a bit about along the lines Max Weber suggested. Luther and Calvin moved things towards that moral authorization, but at least in Britain, which happens to be what I know and study more, especially noteworthy are the ministers shown in this slide. Most of these men had great influence, uh, particularly Perkins, Baxter, I'd say Hutchison, and Butler. Um, these godly men morally authorized the pursuit of honest income. But second, for something to become morally authorized, it is necessary in the first instance that that something be sufficiently clarified. Something has to be a thing before it is morally authorized. If the pursuit of honest income is to become morally authorized, people need to know what honest income means. So what is honest income? Here I turn to jurisprudence. Grotius wrote of a basic form of justice he called expletive justice. Smith called it commutative justice. It's the duty not to mess with your neighbor's person, property, and promises due. Jural theorists explicated what counts as property, what counts as promises or contract, and what counts as messing with any of that. Building on Suarez and other Spanish writers, Grotius was a giant, as was Pufendorf, whose work was more utilized in Britain, flowing into Smith's predecessors at Glasgow. The point is that jurisprudence needed to clarify something like honest income in order for something like honest income to be morally authorized. Honest income was income flowing from activities that, at least at minimum, did not violate commutative justice. This jurisprudence element belongs to the godly path. Grotius wrote a book titled The Truth of the Christian Religion, and Pufendorf wrote of divine law. Jural theorists saw natural jurisprudence within God's laws. Godly social life 
called for a social grammar. We're not in the band anymore. We need a grammar. And commutative justice was a system of social rules making for a social grammar. We see in the writings of these clerics a progression in their discussion of vocation and calling. The word calling is more used here. Um, first, in Luther, it is working hard, even piously, in your job. Writers suggested something like a list of the jobs that were elect callings. But there is a general movement towards greater abstraction. First, the list was expanded to include more of the familiar jobs, which were honest income, now also deemed elect. Then there is a discussion of choosing your calling from those on the list, and then combining callings, and then switching callings, and then adding wholly new callings to the list, that is, innovation. All this drives towards reverting instead to the basic idea of honest income, that is, scrapping entirely the idea of a list. However it is that you earn income, as long as you kept within the bounds of commutative justice, as well as other important bounds, the income was kosher, even praiseworthy. The clarification of commutative justice made possible an open, expansive, innovation-friendly idea of serving God by pursuing honest income. The flip side of not messing with people's stuff is others not messing with your stuff. The sovereign not messing with people's stuff is liberty. Liberty is a flip side of commutative justice. Thus, clarifying commutative justice, this vital role of jurisprudence, meant clarifying a set of principles or rights that subjects could claim against their governors. Dugald Stewart, a little younger than Smith, a Scottish guy, uh, said that natural jurisprudence provided the first rudiments of liberal politics. Pocock put the point succinctly, the child of jurisprudence is liberalism. I think Adam Smith would defend the liberal plan as true to Christianity. In my remarks, I've highlighted elements along the path to Smith's liberal plan. Many of those are best understood in reference to a universal benevolent beholder. That's that sun-like face up there. Even if one stops short of theistic conviction, one should realize that this pattern of ethical thought owes everything to theism, and this pattern ought to dance with theistic interpretations. Also, from the point of view of a parent, one should realize that a good way to impart that pattern of thought to your child is to posit God and go from there. In closing, I raise the question, can liberalism be sustained in a world of waning belief in God? Tocqueville said that the spirit of liberty and the spirit of religion depend on each other. Hayek ended the fatal conceit, asking whether people in an age of waning theism will not be inclined to find meaning and validation in cultish politics. Christianity led to the inventing of the individual, but Tocqueville and Hayek feared that resurgent cultishness would de-invent the individual by crushing liberty and instituting 
a new form of serfdom, hence the road to serfdom. I believe liberals will do a better job of sustaining their tradition if they realize that, and I think Jordan Peterson says this, our modes of sense-making must involve formulations that are quasi-religious, if not fully religious. With theists, <clears throat> I find in humans a call upward. Cultists may call the miscreant an idiot, but it is only the idiot who discovers paths upward, and he or she does so in conversation with fellow idiots. People, even cultists, know deep down that we are called upward, and upwardness is admired. The worse the times are, the more will idiocy become us. So stay hopeful. God isn't going anywhere. And I thank you for your attention. I was just wondering, uh, as you listed the uh, influencers, the British influencers and the tradesmen, um, you didn't mention either Knox or Wesley. And I was wondering, is that because they came later or you just didn't feel they had the same effect? I'm ignorant. I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm an economist okay. and this is the best I could do. I know, I know something about Knox, of course, and the covenants, covenantists. Uh, and I know something about Wesley as well, of course, although I forget and I get all these guys mixed up. Um, but how would you fit them in? Wesley was very much a working man's uh, pastor and preacher, preached in, in shipyards and mining things and really talked about um, the Protestant work ethic. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't quite know why. I'll tell you, uh, Dan mentioned that I work with Eric Madsen and he's been mining this clerical, you know, moral authorization. And he just hasn't hit upon Wesley. We're, we're teaching a course called uh, God and Honest Income uh, together. And I'm relying a great deal on him to kind of decide what the readings will be and who to focus on. So Eric, Eric probably knows more about him, but um, yeah, just I'm learning. <laughs> Other questions, comments? Uh, yeah. Thank you um, so much for that um, enjoyable presentation of, of Adam Smith. And, and I also thought perhaps um, you might be able to speak to us more specifically on his uh, moral sense and its, its origins uh, of, of moral sympathy. Um, and, and my question, thinking about the band and the cult and, and this sort of thing, I wonder to what extent uh, you see his moral sympathy as, as a recapitulation of Locke and empiricism, uh, or, or do you see it as more in line with Shaftesbury and Hutchinson's critique of, of Locke and, and rediscovery of virtue ethics? Um, sure. Um, it's certainly more in line with Shaftesbury and Hutchinson. Hutchinson was his teacher at Glasgow. Um, he saw us as naturally, inherently sympathetic. And then the big, the big question is really sympathetic with whom? And that's where the progression and development happens. That's the story of the development of with who. It's not about this guy sympathetic, this guy doesn't. It's more like this 
good guy is sympathetic with good things, and this guy is sympathetic with not so good things. That's more Smith's approach. It's not about, oh, this guy cooperates and this guy doesn't. This guy cooperates with good stuff. This guy cooperates maybe just in his breast in a very odd way with bad things. And so it's a question then of the development of who, with whom you cooperate. And the, the big thing that happens in Smith is the man within the breast. Your conscience, that's his expression for the conscience. The conscience is um, a kind of composite that you develop through life and it continues to develop with various social influences that you somehow work together. Everyone's composite is unique and in that way everybody is individual and has a sort of independent special judgment. However, it is made up of social influences so it is never independent of all social influence. And he said the man within the breast is a representative of God. Okay, so that's the highest impartial spectator. This progression in Smith, he described as you reflect on your moral judgment in terms of what someone who was impartial to the players involved in the scene would feel. And you gradually take, you know, kind of sense that more. And then it's that impartial spectator that you sympathize with, actually. So it's, it's, a, it's about, um, so, so moral development in Smith is a develop, the, the development of this impartial spectator. Now, this is not necessarily, you know, this is not necessarily a good representative of God. So there's no guarantees here. Um, God is you know, universally benevolent. So if you're to sympathize with God, you want to enter into what God finds beautiful, the good of the whole as a benevolent being. But we don't have that point of view at all. We can share, you know, each other's point of views to some extent and those of some of our exemplars who have taught us how to put stuff together and be more intellectual in a way about a lot of it. Uh, and so the, the sentiment mixes in with the thinking, with the theorizing, actually a great deal. There's not that separation of reason and sentiment that you get uh, from some people. You know, even Hume actually said, he's quoted for saying, like, there's reason and there's passion, but he also said that reason is a calm passion. So, you know, he was playing games, especially in the treatise with his, you know, the way he said things. Got some, some of that stuff just disappears, thank goodness. Um, yeah, but anyhow, I don't know if that helps. <laughs> Why do you think that Christianity is fading in the Western world? Well, its negative effects seem to be obvious. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. I don't think I have any special angle about why Christianity, and I guess theism generally, we could say, is fading or declining. Um, I guess, I, 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 um, well, I do think that things took a bad turn Around, right around about eight, I would say 1800, and then politically things took a very bad turn later uh, in the 19th century. 
I would say. Um, but I think, I think that um, notions, I mean, this is, I, there's so much to try to, uh, you know, it's like elephant, like where do you start grabbing it? But um, I think people started having the, they, in some ways it was a scientism. I think scientism, if you like, is a bit, is, is in that people thought moral questions, moral philosophy could somehow be more precise and accurate and a little bit like, oh, let's try to do what Newton has done. Okay. Um, and so you have people who want to lead their area of thinking uh, and kind of somehow get away from the kind of considerations we're, we're talking about here, which are by their very nature, loose, vague, and indeterminate. Aesthetic. We're talking about what God finds beautiful. You know, we all, we don't have a very good formula for that. We all have a sense of what movies we like and don't like. But if someone asks you, okay, what's the formula for a good movie? You don't know what to say. Um, and I think that made, I don't know, science and intellectual life, um, I think, went in a bad direction after 1800. That may have been part of the decline. I don't think evolution is actually necessarily that big a part because I don't think uh, theism necessarily has such a big problem there. But um, another thing then coming into the end of the century, I'm just trying to, um, is that the government itself, I mean, politics itself takes a turn towards collectivism. And liberalism really kind of breaks down, uh, faces a crisis at the end of the 19th century. People, people don't realize that it really starts then. A lot of people don't focus enough on this period where young people were no longer brought up with, uh, in Britain and the Anglosphere with uh, an emphasis on liberal ideas the way they, they had, the way their parents or their grandparents had. And so moving into the 20, early 20th century, uh, it's very, very, very different. Um, and so then the government basically starts institutionalizing cultishness and propagating it, indoctrinating it into people. And so we've got that end of it. We've got huge bureaucratic institutional systems that <clears throat> offer a different source of meaning and validation. Not God, but now the social cues of the power structures around you. And that crowds um, God as a source of meaning and validation. It's a, a substitute, very much along the lines of dem democracy in America, is what I'm suggesting. That the, what Tocqueville was, saw in France and was warning us of generally, um, just has happened to a great extent. And, keeps people from being theistic because they, they're offering this other basis. How does that sound to you? Basically, I, I agree. We're, we're headed back to Roman times where the government is now God. Yeah, yeah, the government is like the surrogate God or politics or something like that is, is, is uh, the trend. Well, you know. If... I'm sorry. Agreeing yeah. with you, it's multifaceted. And while we may not know all the reasons why theism is waning, we can agree that it is. And I'm, I'm wondering as an agnostic, 
how, what do you see, what do we lose with theism waning? Can that liberal program advance if theism continues to wane? I'm worried, just like Tayek and Tocqueville and probably everyone in this room is worried, uh, that this trend will continue. Um, and I mean both trends about attitudes towards God or religious or quasi-religious attitudes, let me put it that way, um, and the trend towards collectivism, the governmentalization of social affairs, the governmentalization of social affairs. I'm worried about both those trends. I do think they go hand in hand, just as Tocqueville said about the spirit of liberty and the spirit of religion. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. Um, we can hope. I mean, hope springs eternal. I do believe what I said here is that we have a call upwards. And that's not totally eradicated. It can't be totally eradicated, I trust. And um, we don't know what the future is. I'm, I, don't, I don't know. You know, things that looked very dark in certain times in the past and got better or ameliorated. Um, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I I speak as a as a Christian. I think it is impossible for the liberal program to advance without a holistic, consistent. Um, not only corresponding view of truth, but a, but a cohering view of truth as a whole. And I don't see how you have that unless you're ontologically grounded in the divine. Yeah. I don't disagree. I mean, I, my agnosticism is of the sort of, I hope there is God. But I'm going to work my, the patterns of my thought are the same. And, you know, do I believe in divine providence? Am I, do I believe in Christian God? Do I believe, you know, the Christian beliefs? I don't, I'm agnostic. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know. I, you know, what can I tell you? Um, and, but, you know, if I find out that they're all true, that's fine. But the point is, my, my attitude is, that pattern of thought, when you're talking about ontological grounding, um, that's fine. That pattern of thought, and then throughout ethics, which really includes, in my view, epistemology. So the whole kahuna um, depends on God, God-like understanding and your relation and, and beings. It's not just some brute reason and factualness or science or any, it's, it's, not the way, it's not the way we actually make sense of the world and find, virt find virtue. So I don't think we disagree and I'm worried too. Um, we'll see, I mean, at least for a while, we'll see, <laughs> you and I.
Thank you so much for the talk. Um, I'm Dylan. I work here at Acton. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about what you would view as the role of technology in this story. Um, so certainly I, I do agree that there is a Jewish and Christian idea of the individual, but there's also a sort of individualizing of authority that comes with the printing press and everyone being able to read scriptures for themselves in a way that just was not technologically possible before that time. Um, and, you know, there's other things you could talk about, you know, um, farming equipment, things like that, that, it, that, had, that advanced the division of labor and things like that. So I, I'm just curious, that's, that's a, I, I'm very sympathetic with the, the general thrust of, you know, faith and religion um, as a grounding uh, for the kind of underlying moral basis of liberalism. Um, but there's also there's interesting circumstances of history uh, having to do, in this case, uh, for this question anyway, with, with technology. I'm curious how that factors in. Yeah, the technology factor is very, very important. And I really believe in the importance of working the printing press into this narrative. I just failed to do it. Um, it, it throws interpretation of the world wide open and creates essentially competition and secession from the church and, you know, really cracks things wide open. Absolutely. Um, technology more generally is vital in, in breaking up um, kind of the compound nestedness of everyday life and traditional society. Um, and so you get more commerce, you get the towns and so on and so forth. And so all that I think is very vital to um, the development of individualism, indi the ideas of the individual, the rights of the individual, markets, economics. Um, so that's, that's all absolutely true. Um, going forward in the story, I think technology plays a very significant role in the bad part in the later, in the, let's say in the 19th century, uh, where the government, I mean, basically this kind of pol political development that we're worried about is in a way, this is Hayek saying this, it's the government and the collectivists trying to turn the polity into the, a new band as though we are a familiar family and almost like we want to achieve, reestablish re, re that cultish mentality towards the world. And I think technology is vital in this because of like just photography, just putting pictures on the front page of the newspaper and getting people to sense that somehow they're part of this, like now all of a sudden the polity is, you know, some kind of experience they think they're sharing. And then of course, film and radio and, and then, of course, there's, you know, the control that comes with the technology. That is to say, governmental control, tracking, taxing, everything. This was just harder for kings to do back in the day, um, which is maybe part, very much part of how Britain developed its liberal spirit. So technology is frightening in that respect, too. Um, of course... Technology is also available to we who challenge, we idiots who dissent. Jordan Peterson, I mean, he's got millions of views and so on and so forth. So it does, to some extent, cut both ways. I got a couple of questions for you that are a little simpler and, and closer to your uh, specialization about Adam Smith. One, um, I've heard that, that Wealth of Nations was kind of an exception to 
his writing in that most of his writing was theological. And uh, I'd like you to comment on that. But as, as along with that, did he anticipate or what were his views of the Industrial Revolution? And did he think that wage labor was slavery? Um, which came okay. in, in the middle 19th century. Um, so in terms of um, whether he was a theological writer and then Wealth of Nations is exceptional, uh, there is a difference. There's a big, there's a very big difference in the language between the two great works. There's basically two great works, the Theory of Moral Sentiments and the Wealth of Nations. Um, and divine providence is affirmed repeatedly in the first book. Absolutely. And like I say, I, the impartial spectator in the highest sense is clearly God in his story. Um, there are issues about how he revised the work, those changes over time, because he revised it, the first work right up to the year that he died, actually. Um, there, th those changes actually kind of go both ways to some extent. Um, so it's not clear that he renounced or retracted significantly the um, theistic feeling of the theory of moral sentiments. The Wealth of the Nations is quite devoid of that language and feeling. It's not as though he's saying something to the contrary, but you just don't have that same, that same, um, sorry, that same um, spirit and warmth. Uh, it's a different kind of book. It's very interesting to think about the whole set of differences in the way it's written in the language of the two books. Um, I don't think there's a real inconsistency. He, he, he almost created a puzzle for us with this, and it's been a puzzle that has been much discussed. Um, so I don't, I don't think he, I don't actually think he necessarily changed his religious views uh, during the course of his life. And in fact, I don't think I know, I don't know what they are, they were. I don't know if it's apt to call him Christian, deist, agnostic. Like, uh, it's, he was very close to the vest about that. Um, now, about the Industrial Revolution, um, he died in 1790. So the, the blade of the hockey stick really starts after, just after he dies. He morally authorized, he, he is a very big figure in this moral authorization, and then bang, you get the great enrichment. So I think his final wealth, particularly in the wealth nations, but also theory of moral sentiments, um, really did a lot to create that blade of the hockey stick, but it came just after he died. So he didn't, he didn't see the big swing in his lifetime. Um, I think some people emphasize, say that he didn't realize how dramatic and dynamic this could be, the economic development uh, and innovation. I personally think there's reason to believe that he saw more than he let on. And he didn't want to alarm people that this is what the liberal plan would bring, this tumult of change and dynamism, because it is scary and it did upset people, for sure. I think, I think there's reasons to believe, there's a paper I can recommend on uh, called the, the Dynamism of Liberalism, an esoteric reading of Adam Smith, um, which suggests, and I think you can see a lot of things in Smith, where he saw that innovation is a very central thing, actually, in economics and would have this potential 
for great dynamism. So I think he may have anticipated the great growth more than he let on. And the last one was about wage, wage labor as being uh, slavery. Certainly not. No, far quite the opposite. Absolutely, totally the opposite. He talked about, um, in fact, one of the things he emphasized was that markets make, make workers less dependent on any single employer because it multiplies the possible you know, jobs um, and customers. Um, and, and, and so it actually increased, markets increase independence that way, individual independence from any one major person that you become dependent on. Um, so no, and, and just in terms of commutative justice, I mean, it's a voluntary agreement between people. Of course, it's, it's, it's not slave, slavery at all. It's not at all. It's not messing with anyone's stuff. You're not messing with, you know, the employer's not messing with the employee's stuff, and the employee isn't messing with the employer's stuff, and they're not messing with anyone else's stuff. So it's commutatively entirely just. So with the rise of non-religious, uh, you know, in the West, I'm wondering, you know, a lot of people have posited different, you know, the civic great awakening or different things to replace religion. You kind of talked about quasi-religion. Wondering if you can tell us what you mean by quasi-religion, because it's always kind of slippery to me. Yeah. What different people mean uh, by kind of non-religious replacements for religion. So can you talk a little bit more about that? What was that last part again? I got the kind of, question kind of about what quasi, what I mean by quasi-religious, but after that. Oh, just there's different people who posit kind of non-religious replacements for religion. So, you know, we're surely getting that in the political sphere, but, you know, kind of what do you mean by that? Okay. The way I see things is that each of us has a sense of higher things and lower things. And the higher things that each of us has, it's kind of like we each have a house and the house has a chimney on it. And the chimney represents now the higher things. The thing is, some houses are shorter than other houses. So some higher things are much lower, in my view, than other higher things. Uh, and I do think cultishness and political collectivism shrinks people and flattens their house and makes the, the chimney low. But still, it's the higher thing for those people. And when I mean higher things, I mean the more encompassing things of meaning and validation, sense-making, again, moral validation. And more and more people, I think, are looking to politics and social political cues around them, certain political affiliations, relationships, sources. You know, they need those daily signals to tell them what to feel and what to do. Like I said, that's why they read the New York Times every morning. Um, so to me, when I say, quasi, when I say quasi-religious, I mean this idea of this superhuman, if you like, God-like being that plays actually a role in your moral sense-making. And as we can see in Adam Smith, that is absolutely happening. Even if you take a non-theistic view of the impartial spectator, there is this God-like being, God-light, if you like. This God-like being has super knowledge about each of us, okay? 
it's kind of like always with us and, and is always watching. This godlike being is benevolent to humankind, to the whole of humankind. Now, see, you could stop short of it being what I would consider fully religious because you don't actually need to posit or include, I mean, just to sustain what, Smith, what I see as the essential pattern of ethical thought in Smith, you don't, strictly speaking, need to say that God created the universe. It's just like there's the being, universally benevolent, super knowledgeable, sympathizes with you in this kind of subtle and direct way through your man within the breast and so on. You kind of have to cultivate the ability to feel that kind of... Um, I think just that's the right way to think about ethics and virtue because then, because it, it puts a great role on um, other beings, actual human beings, who then you enter into. You enter into, that's a big word for him. Um, their thinking, their understanding, their sentiments, and they become exemplars and influences. So you kind of incorporate them into your, the man within your breast. And just like, you know, it starts with mom and dad, for sure, presumably. Um, and so quasi-religious means God-like beings playing a central role in understanding and meaning and validation. When, when I say a central role, I mean kind of in the structure and understanding of it. Um, and... and And I think that even my, I would even call my liberalism or liberalism quasi-religious in that it should have that element. And because it, I do think it speaks to the higher space of things. It's not neutral about the higher things. It's not neutral. Generally speaking, it, it says, don't go over here for your validation and meaning. Don't go to collectivism, to the governmentalization of social affairs, to socialism. Don't go there. That's its, uh, that kind of thing is the major higher things precept or imperative of, of liberalism. Now, what it says about outside of that cordoned off area about what to do with your life and where to find meaning and validation over here in the, in the okay part, the permissible part, that it's much less, it's like, look, I'm saying you, you need to protect life. We need to protect liberty. You pursue happiness. Like you've got your own pursuit of happiness. And there it's like, there's the blank page. It's for you to fill, fill the blank page with something. But just don't go over there. So I don't know if that helps. Um, the quasi-religion is, is that it's not, strictly speaking, a, a god who created things. It's not, it's not necessarily, it's, like, it, it's, it's, it's saying, I need to, quasi-religion is saying, I need to think along these lines. It's, it's almost exactly like Peterson says, actually. I'm going to act and think as if there's a god. And whether there is and whether the Bible is as written and true as written, I don't know. I don't know. 
As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.